Thank you. Welcome to Objection to the Forum. This is Justin Humphreys, and today I've got Ryan Blisplinghoff with us. Uh, he's a partner at McGangus, Goudlock, and Curry, and a good friend of mine, so thank you for coming on. No, thanks, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, today we're going to do a discussion for small businesses about workers' compensation laws and kind of do you need workers' compensation insurance, then kind of go briefly through the, the process and how it works out. Uh, Ryan's an expert in this area, a partner at a, at a very well-respected uh, defense firm, and I look forward to speaking with you about it. Sounds good. Uh, so kind of as an initial question, an initial inquiry, when does a, a small business need to make the step of getting workers' compensation insurance? So in North Carolina, you have to, you have, to have workers' compensation insurance if you have three or more employees. And so that is going to also include um, officers in a corporation. And that's where a lot of small businesses get in trouble, where they've got um, one or two named officers and only one key employee, and they think that they do not meet the requirements, and they actually do have three or more under the definition, and they don't get workers' comp when they, in fact, need it. What's the, what are the consequences of not having that insurance, or what, what's, what's the, the risk? Yeah, so several years ago, there was no real risk in that situation. They really didn't enforce it for these executive officers. However, uh, the Industrial Commission, which is the uh, administrative office in North Carolina that handles workers' compensation claims, started actively um, pursuing employers that, to make sure that they were complying with the statute. And so if they determine that you, if they make a determination that you have three or more employees and you don't have workers' compensation insurance, you're going to be fined. The penalties can be $50 a day up until the time that you actually comply with the statute. So if you're operating for a year without a workers' compensation insurance, you can do the math. It can be fairly significant. Have you ever done one of those fine hearings at the, at the Industrial Commission? I have. I have. I've seen it's kind of a it's it's not a pleasant process. You know, they they tend to want to go through all your payroll records and want to see you know how many employees you had. And it's it's really it's a pretty invasive uh, situation. Yeah, it is. They're, they'll they'll request that you have all of your payroll records, all of your tax returns for the last one we had. I think that they were requesting three or four years of tax returns. So it can be it can be very invasive. The good thing is is you can. Uh, negotiate with them um, if you are in one of those situations and they will work with you on um, on those penalties and those fines but it, it can be laborious yeah it's interesting like but the I've only done a couple of these but the experience I had with it um, they they seem to kind of dance on the line of can they go after a company's officers or, or owners in their personal capacity. I don't, I don't think it's really been played out, at least outside of the con contempt context, but they were kind of hint around it or that was kind of some of their negotiating posture. Yeah, and they've recently, there's a new commissioner, there's a there's a new, um, I guess a, a new, um, there's a new chief commissioner at the Industrial Commission and they have, I think that they are working to change that process for a while there. They were, they were very aggressive and they were threatening to go after individual officers and things of that nature. And I think that the legislature has, to whatever extent they, they can, I think that they've, you know, I don't think that they want them doing that basically. Yeah, that's, that's probably a good thing because I know that the, the overall goal behind what they were doing was good of making sure that employers have insurance and that the employees are protected. But in a lot of situations, they were jeopardizing people's jobs by trying to come in and shut down uh, small businesses with, with just huge fines. And so I'm, I'm glad to hear it's been lightened up a little bit. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that was the debate. What are you trying to do here? Are you trying to punish these people or are you just trying to get them in compliance and make sure that you're protecting the workers of North 
North Carolina. And so I, I think that they have readjusted the way that they're doing that, and I think that you know they're more focused now on just making sure that folks comply when they need to comply. One of the things I thought was interesting, you know, it can also be a, a criminal charge, but for the most part, the the DAs, it's it's pretty low on their list of what they're going after. And I've, I've only had one client that, that received a criminal charge for this, and all it had to do was, was produce um, a current policy to show the DA that, no, now we have a comp policy, and they weren't concerned with looking back and the time when it wasn't in place. Yeah, and I think that the the only time that, at least in my experience, that there are several provisions in the North Carolina Workers' Compensation Act that are enforceable uh, with criminal penalties. And in my experience, most of the deputy, I mean, most of the district attorneys are not going to really pursue those unless there is is just widespread fraud or there is a, a, a large scale effort to avoid having to do what you're um, supposed to do. I, I didn't realize that was such a common thing. Like what, what other areas of the, of the act are, are punishable by criminal sanctions? So, for example, if you're an injured worker and you're out of work for a period of time and you're getting indemnity compensation and you fail to report to the insurance company that you're receiving wages from an alternative source, that can be punished um, by misdemeanor and or felony, depending on the amount of the benefits that you get. Um, There are other criminal charges with regard to um, uh, health insurance providers actually billing, um, billing, uh, inappropriately billing, injured workers when they're supposed to be billing the um, the insurance companies as well. So there's there's a host of things that can be enforced criminally, but yep. they're not um, not typically done so unless there's a really big fraud. Well, and kind of moving back, I guess, to the employer's perspective, I guess it's you know it's good to know that if you're if you do have officers that you meet the threshold of having to have the insurance. Uh, it's my understanding that you can reduce your premiums though by kind of opting out of the insurance. That's right. You can. You have the ability if you are an executive officer, you can opt out of coverage. So you're required to have coverage, but you don't have to cover yourself um, under the workers' compensation policy, which can effectively reduce your premium because if you're, especially if you're a highly compensated executive, they can take that payroll out and you're only gonna really need coverage for the folks that actually probably really need it if anybody's doing anything risky or uh, in in regard to their employment. The other thing is even if you um, don't properly get insurance, depending on the nature of your work, usually a policy is pretty cheap, especially if you only have three people um, and you're in a small startup, you're not gonna be paying, and you're not in a risky field, it's yeah. not going to be a high premium. It was kind of like in the earlier days of the, the firm, we, we kind of were in that, that area of two to three employees, and it's almost you'd have to be an idiot to hurt yourself at a law firm, but uh, but it happens. You yeah, know? yeah. lifting enough. boxes and stuff yeah. like that. We get a lot of injuries where folks tripping in the office and, you know, all sorts of crazy things like that, so. Yeah. We, um, so from that, I guess when you're when you're in that that kind of area of well, should you get it or should you not, um, and then you can always exclude yourself. Are there certain min? I thought I remembered something about minimums being in these pilot, like where you where they were going to base your premium off of like a certain. You can only go so low as far as your your um, your salary that they're calculating the premium from. It, that may be the case. I'm not I'm not sure, Justin. I know that most of the time they're going to base it on your payroll. That's what that's what they do. That's why you have lots of issues where, especially in the construction trades, um, folks will get workers' compensation insurance, um, but they will report to the insurance carrier that they only have, you know, four employees when they really have 
10 or 15, but they're classifying the other six or seven employees as independent contractors and they're paying them on a 1099. Is that what that ghost policy means? Or I've heard that term thrown around a lot. Yeah, effectively. So you get a small policy saying you've only got a small number of workers and then you, you really have all of these other workers and you're paying them under a 1099. So we get involved in claims like that all the time where there's an injured, there's a, some money in the construction trade that gets hurt. We speak with the insured and they say, well, he wasn't an employee. He was an independent contractor. And they're, I'm like, okay. But there's, there's a whole series of factors that the courts are going to look at to actually determine if someone is an independent contractor. And I can tell you that just because you pay somebody on a 1099 and pay them cash does not mean that they're not going to be considered an employee. I go through this every year on my um, on, they do get my audits of the workers comp policy and so they want to see you know your your quarterly unemployment returns that show kind of what your what salary you paid out uh, throughout the course of the year and then um, we'll have various contractors that work with sometimes we get uh, title abstracts or patent abstracts or sometimes like we'll have mediator fees or other professional fees that kind of go in the 1099 category and so then the auditor every time comes back and says, oh, we got to add this to your, to your payroll. So now we got to bump up your premium. They have to say no. And they say, well, and contractors count. It's just a frustrating thing. I mean, it always ends up that these people aren't statutory employees, but we kind of go through that, that hassle every year. It's, it's, it's the worst. Yeah, no, I mean, it is. And so, and and from a white collar, quote unquote, white collar perspective, that's interesting. We don't really ever deal with it in that perspective. We're, We're literally always dealing with it's always a subcontractor, um, and it's you know, and most of the time they they classify all of their laborers as quote unquote independent contractors, and they pay them on a on a 1099. But inevitably, it goes back to control and things of that nature to determine whether or not they really are an employee. And what happens is somebody gets hurt, insurance company then does an audit, and they're going to seek back, uh, they're going to ask for back owed premiums effectively and if you don't pay it then they're going to get then you've got a situation where the insurance company has canceled um, their policy and now they're not insured at all so the, the way i understand it the risk is when you're a, a general contractor or you could be a subcontractor that has its own subs and then somebody kind of under you in the in the chain gets injured and they don't have insurance is that is that the case that that's where it causes the problem for you yeah that's right so in north carolina if you are uh general contractor or a contractor and you contract with another company to perform a part of a job that you were hired to do if you 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 have to get a certificate of insurance from that contractor showing that that they have workers compensation insurance and if you don't do that and if they do not have workers compensation insurance then if their employees are hurt you are going to be responsible for them so before the job starts under the law, you have to get a certificate of insurance, and you got to make sure that they have um, workers' compensation. And I imagine with your certificate of insurance, it might be valid at the time that the insurance company issues it. But if you're on a monthly or quarterly premium situation, you don't pay your bill, it could be canceled. That's right. So from the perspective of the the contractor or the sub who is hiring the other company to perform work, you don't have any duty other than getting a certificate of insurance from them that shows that they have valid insurance. There are some arguments that you may not be protected if you should have known that they did not have insurance or you somehow colluded with them to, you know, defraud the insurance company or something like that. But 
generally speaking, if, if you hire a sub and they give you a certificate of insurance and prior to that job working and prior to when you hire, you hired them, if they have insurance and you've got a valid certificate, you should be protected even if 30 days later they stop paying their premium and they get canceled um, prior to the accident if you don't know about it. Now, if you become aware of the fact that their insurance has been canceled and you continue to allow them to work on the job, I don't think that you're going to be able to make that argument. I mean, realistically, how would you become aware of something like that? You, you typically would not unless they tell you and you just tell them it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, unless you, you know, unless you're you're very close with them and you just tell them it's okay. Um, the other thing that happens a lot, and I, I have to tell folks all the time, like, this doesn't count. What, what will happen is a lot of these operations, especially in the construction fields, these guys are running shoestring operations. And so they don't have any money until they work on a job and get paid at the end of the week or at the end of the second week, right? So they normally have to do a couple of jobs to get money in the bank to go get insurance. And so we get clients all the time where one of the subs workers has been hurt and he's like, well, he told me he was gonna get insurance. He just didn't have enough money. I'm like, well, just because he tells you he's going to get it, that doesn't satisfy the requirements. You actually have to get the certificate of insurance. So it happens all the time that on the first first or second week of a job, somebody gets hurt and nobody's got insurance because they haven't been paid yet. Yeah. Well, that's kind of interesting. And when you're dealing with the private end of workers' compensation insurance, meaning or workers' comp defense, meaning there's no insurance in place, are the rules the same as if you're insured or is there any... Um, or uh, is there any additional compensation or less compensation if there's no insurance? No, if you if, if you do not have insurance and you are found to be responsible for somebody's injuries, it can be extremely expensive because you have to pay the medical bills, which can, if the injury is severe, can can rack up to the you know tens of thousands of dollars very quickly. You'll have to pay them their indemnity compensation, and there is no um, there is no reprieve from that under the act. Um, Typically, unless you negotiate a resolution with them and their attorney. In that situation, are the medical bills dollar for dollar the hospital or, or provider's charge, or do you still get the benefit of kind of the workers' comp rates for, for treatment? You should, you'll should get the benefit of the, the fee schedule. Gotcha. Um, so that's kind of one of the frequent, kind of shifting gears a little bit, one of the frequent in inquiries I get um, from some of the some of our business clients will be, they'll, I'll get a call that somebody's been injured at the job, and always the first question is, should I make them get a drug test? And then the second question is kind of like, well, what do I do in this situation? So I guess if we kind of take them one at a time, how does the, the drug test process work for a, a worker that's been injured at the job? So that that can that can be tricky when because you have to pay attention to the federal ADA and then OSHA regulations and things of that nature. And there have been some OSHA regulations, and I'm not an expert on that, and there's some parameters around what you you have to whether or not you have to require somebody to get a drug test or or whatnot and so without taking into account those osha regulations um typically if if you're made aware of somebody getting hurt you should send them to a, a an urgent care and then you should when you take them to the urgent care you should tell indicate to the people at the urgent care that you want to get them drug tested especially if you suspect that there may be um yeah. you think that they may be intoxicated and so you don't have to have any kind of employment agreement or any prior authorization for the employee to get drug tested in order to require that you can require it now they don't have to do it 
Um, they, they don't have to go get drugs. We get calls all the time where someone clearly was involved in an accident and they and the carrier wants to know if I can deny the claim because they refuse to go get the drug test. Sometimes we do deny the claim for that, but that is not a, an affirmative defense to a compensable workers' compensation claim. And technically, if someone would have a good argument, if they said, I just, I'm, I refuse to, to get a drug test, I think that they would have a good argument. I don't know that you're going to, it's going to be hard to, to overcome that uh, from for defense to a claim. So yeah, and that's that's good to know because I always thought that there was a requirement that you had to consent to a drug test if you injured yourself at the job and, and to go in and get treatment. No, not not in not in North Carolina. There is no there is no provision in there that that says that um, if you get hurt at work, you have to you, you have to go give a drug test. Now many employees have many employers have policies that if they refuse to go get a drug drug test and they're terminated and we deal with that all the time somebody gets hurt they refuse to get a drug test they're automatically terminated because of a policy that they have yeah. but that doesn't affect the compensability of the injury i see and so in that in that context i guess the reason why you'd want the drug test is that if you were if you were able to demonstrate that the employee was was impaired at the time of their injury then i guess that would be an affirmative defense for the for the insurer that's right. So, if at the time that somebody's injured, they are um, they are intoxicated or they are impaired um, to an appreciable extent, and that that impairment was the proximate cause of the accident, you can deny the claim. Because, yeah. like for example, like let's say something like reefer, you know, it might be somebody that you know, that, from what I understand, that can stay in your system maybe six to eight weeks. Yeah. So you know, your drug test comes back that you had THC in your system. But that's not going to prove that the guy was high at the time of the incident, I would think. Yeah. Now, marijuana, I mean, we get claims that are denied for positive marijuana tests all the time. That is very difficult to, that is very difficult to prevail on an intoxication defense. Unless you also have coworkers who can say that when he picked him up in the work van, he was, you know, he smoked a joint on the way to the job. He smoked a joint at lunch. You know, if you can have other, other witnesses that will, you know, tell you or, or can quantify the um, the temporal nature of the drug use and the quantity of the drug use, then then we can get a toxicologist to say that based on the fact that, you know, co-worker said that he smoked two joints at eight in the morning and then two joints at 12, at three, based on all these factors, was he therefore intoxicated? So kind of on a related note, um, what if somebody is injured um, and they have a prescription for lawful medication, but it's something that could impair you, like a narcotic or, or something like that, and the the lawful prescription they took kind of put them in a state that caused their accident? So the the um, the way that the statute reads, it says that you know it's a prescription that they're not prescribed. So I think that if they take a prescription. Um, and and they're and you're able to. Sh- I don't know that you're going to be able to approve that defense in that case. But that it, that begs the question. It just depends on the circumstance. I yeah. think. And I guess you know, kind of the last thought I had on that is then let's say you get the guy that did some coke in the bathroom. He's at work, and then you know has an injury unrelated to his impairment. But he was impaired, and and you can, you can prove it. Does the does the impairment have to cause the incident, or is it? Yeah, that's right. It's got to be a proximate cause. So um, we we talk about. I don't know why, but we deal with these cases a lot with roofers. 
So, you know, if if somebody does cocaine in the bathroom and they're standing on a piece of plywood on the roof and a 35 mile an hour gust of wind comes and blows that piece of plywood off and they're and they're properly uh, tied off and everything and they still get hurt, you're going to lose that case. But if the guy does a line of coke in the bathroom, gets on the roof, doesn't tie off and makes an aggressive effort to jump from uh, trust to trust or do something risky yeah. and then falls off, then you're going to win that case. Does kind of your, your benefit of the doubt and error kind of impact that? Like for, you know, because people do stupid stuff at work all the time and injure themselves. But it's my understanding that if the stupid thing they do is related to the injury, then it's compensable. Yeah, so being stupid and doing something dumb at work is not a defense either. But if you can show that they were intoxicated, I have been able to successfully make that argument. And you're going to have to get a toxicologist. But you're going to have to get a toxicologist to testify regarding whatever substance they substance they did and then the effects of that substance on their mental capacity and risk-taking and things of that nature. And get a toxicologist to say that if you did this, this amount of substance that it did, you know, make him impaired and that, you know, a risky behavior is a, a, a sign, I guess, of being impaired by that substance. One of the claims that I, I see a lot, and it can be, you know, the, the place where it's most prevalent is landlord-tenant, but uh, but mold. Mold claims, in my opinion, are the worst. Like, I, I don't like dealing with it. A lot of times, you know, people, it's looking for an excuse after the fact. They say, well, you know, I didn't pay the rent. Oh, well, there was mold. Yeah, and the mold is why I didn't pay, and they need to fix it. And you know, I think that you could probably found you know this is a pretty humid climate in uh, southeastern North Carolina. There's probably many homes have a have mold in it to a certain extent, but what I've seen a little bit of is 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 employees making um, comp claims as a result of mold exposure. Have, have you come across that? Yeah, those cases are rare, but they do exist. And and if an injured worker is able to prove certain things, they're able to prove. If there is mold in the workplace, we, they call those sick building cases, and um, they get sick as a result of that mold, then they their claim can be compensable. Um, if their their work placed them at a greater risk of the, of the general public of developing whatever sickness, and they're able to prove that, that the mold in that building was a significant causal factor in that, um, then they can they can win. Those cases are, are are tough for injured workers to win. They're also tough to defend because. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of science that would go into it. And then you'd say, well, you know, what was it a, a abnormal level of mold in the building or was it just kind of within a normal to- tolerance? Was it toxic mold or what? I think there's like thousands of different spores of mold. And different That's right. And, and what, did they even work in remote proximity to that mold and things of that nature? And in every mold case that I've ever gotten involved in, one person gets sick, one person claims there's mold, and you're going to have – you you never have one person that works – and, and for a company to have a mold claim, you're going to have four or five because everybody else is going to start feeling sick even if they're not claiming that they've been exposed. I, I know we've tossed around the term causation a bunch, which kind of, you know, the kind of the simple way of putting it is is what caused the, the underlying damage or what's the root cause of the case. How does it work in workers' comp when there may be um, multiple factors that cause the same injury? Yeah. That's a good question because I think it's a common misperception that just because an injured worker develops pain while at work or experiences some sort of injury to their body while they are on the clock, that it's automatically compensable. So there has to be some accident or some interruption of their normal work routine. 
And then that interruption or the accident must cause a physically disabling injury. So if you've got an underlying, and you can prove medical causation in, in a, a variety of ways, but you have to get a doctor to either say that that event was the, the acute cause or the direct cause of whatever injury that you have. Or you have to get a doctor to say that that event at work was a materially aggravating factor or, or it exacerbated an underlying condition. So in North Carolina, uh, it, it, the work injury doesn't have to be the sole cause, but if it um, is a is is a materially aggravates or exacerbates something, then then the employer can be responsible for it. Yeah, and I mean, I would imagine there's like you were talking about like you know backs or things like that. I mean, I imagine you could take it as remote as you know I'm, I've been working at a desk and my posture is poor and I've been kind of hunched over this computer for 30 years and and that's I've, my doctor told me that that's not good for my back or something like that. Yeah, I mean you can have so you've got you've kind of got two statutes that that deal with or two types of claims you can have um, at work. You have the accident claim, which means yeah I fell out of my desk and hurt my shoulder. And then you can have the case that you just described, and that would be under the occupational disease, which are these chronic conditions, the mold and other chronic type conditions. So if you're able to show, and you're gonna to have to have a doctor show that basically your job placed you at a greater risk than the general public of developing whatever condition it is, and that your job and the, and the, the way in your performance of your job was a significant causal factor in, your in developing that condition, then it would be compensable. Sitting at a desk, I think it's gonna be a tough claim to prove because everybody in America does that all day long. Um, but there are certain certain other types of uh, jobs that may place somebody in an awkward posture or things of that nature where they may be able to prove that case. Well, kind of getting back to the, to the employer, um, earlier, I think you were discussing your recommendations for if an employer gets a claim, and I think you were talking about, you know, send them to the urgent care. Um, what all, first of all, is there a distinction? Is there a benefit of an urgent care versus a hospital or ER or anything like that? Well, number one, urgent care is cheaper. Um, so you don't want to send them to the emergency room unless it's a situation where they're ambulatory and it's a very bad accident. You know that they're going to need some significant care. If it's a, you know, if it's a minor accident or something that based on your discussion with them does not appear to be very severe, I would always send them to the urgent care because it's just a lot cheaper. And you may not always and you don't always have to file every accident with your insurance company if the initial medical treatment is less than $2,000. So let me, let me backtrack. So if there is an injury and it's reported to you, you're gonna wanna interview obviously any witnesses. You're gonna wanna take a statement from the injured worker and you're gonna wanna send them to medical treatment to document whatever they're saying. Um, if the medical treatment is more than $2,000 or they're going to be out of work for more than seven days, you're going to need to file a Form 19 to report that injury to your carrier. Um, and so you fill out a Form 19. Typically, when you get workers' compensation insurance, you're going to get a notebook that's going to have instructions in there as to basically how to file a claim. Um, so you're going to want to, you know, whatever, find that notebook, reach out to your insurance agent, or if you've got, uh, if you're a large employer and you, you have lots of claims, you're going to know who to contact at the insurance company to report that. But that's what you those are the first steps that you need to do. Is it your responsibility as an employer to get the injured employee um, to the, the urgent care or to the medical provider, or is that the employee's choice whether to go? No, you have no affirmative responsibility to provide them with care. But um, 
I think that that's what you should do to make sure that it's properly documented and to make sure that they're taken care of initially because you want to um, you want to make sure that they get that initial care because if not things can get just complicated and nasty at the end you know at the end of the day if you they don't go now we have cases all the time where someone gets hurt the employer offers to provide them with care the employee refuses they don't have to go they refuse and then all of a sudden a month later we've got a situation where they're claiming all these injuries and many times that is a good defense if they have refused to go to medical care at the initial outset. How do you go about documenting that that, that you offered care? I mean, do you, would you suggest just go back to your your desk and type out an email that says that you know you you fell today, I offered you care, you said no, you said you were fine, or is it should you have forms in your office that you make the the employee sign confirming that they've refused treatment? Yeah, typically I would have an incident report form, and if there's an incident, you should you know fill that out as to what the what the person who got hurt you know whatever they say happened write down what they say happened go talk to some witnesses write down what the witnesses say happened if you offer them medical care and if they refuse i would document that then i would typically sit down and go over that with the injured worker and say all right this is our policy this is we filled an incident report you're refusing to go to get medical treatment go ahead and sign saying you're refusing to get medical treatment and then just put it away and file it that way if something, you know, let's say that there's an issue a couple months later, you can go back and you can actually remember who all saw it, what they said, and what they did. Because trying to piece that puzzle together um, months later can be very difficult. And I guess there's always the concern where it's something like, uh, you know, uh, injury that could have happened as a result of a fall or it could be a degenerative thing or, you know, you can't really pinpoint exactly when it was. I guess that can work to your benefit as the employer if, if there's no uh, immediacy in the, uh, in the care or treatment. That's right. If they if they first if they fall down and you ask them what happened and they tell you that their right shoulder was hurt and then three months later they came claim that they broke their left ankle, if you've documented actually what happened and the fact that they you know never mentioned anything about the ankle, that's a good defense going down the road. Are there form banks for small businesses that they could they they can you know sometimes you'll get a staples and you'll see like a example. Um, purchase order or invoice or things like that? Are there, are there form banks available for people that they can kind of have a go-by um, incident report for, for workers' comp reporting? You know, I don't know if there are or not. I'm sure that there are some out there. I'm sure that they're like, you know, ADP in some of these places have it. Big broker shops may have it. Um, and there may be through, you know, I know many of the carriers will offer, like I said, they'll, they'll offer training to some of their, um, some of their insureds and they'll have um, some, of that, some of that information. But you, the, pack, the information that you get from your workers' comp carrier usually is gonna have, you either gonna be able to log into some sort of portal or you're gonna have a notebook that is gonna have a copy of that Form 19 form and things like that. Yeah, I don't think, you know, I just, all I remember ever seeing is my premiums and then them trying to claim that the title of abstractors and yeah, or something yeah. like that. That's really the only interaction I've had. But fortunately, we've managed to keep ourselves safe at the at the office and hadn't had any, uh, you know, any injuries picking up the paper or loading the copy or right. anything like that. Yeah. Um, what about with driving? So that's kind of an interesting thing. If you've got employees that are required to drive, you know, for, for example, I guess that's probably the most dangerous thing you do at a law firm is maybe uh, drive to deliver a document or to file something at the courthouse or something of that nature. Yeah. So the, the driving cases and the kind of working from home cases are, we're seeing more and more of that because, um, Number one, a lot of people are, drive all over the place for work, um, and if they get hurt, you know, that it could be compensable. So 
Typically, if you're in a car and you're going to work or you're leaving work, then that's not going to be compensable. But if you're in a car and it's your and you're running an errand, so there's an exception to that rule. Like it's called the special errand rule. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the car and you're driving to the courthouse to file something and you're in a motor vehicle accident, you're going to be covered under workers' comp. Yeah. Unless you have deviated and decided that you got to make a courthouse run, but in the interim you're going to go and see your son, go eat lunch with your son at school, and then you go back. So if you've deviated, then it, you may be outside the scope of your employment. As, it may not be. Is that the frolic and detour? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so uh, there, and then there's the, the called the traveling salesman exception, where that's the the folks that you're just you you wake up, you don't really go report to an office, you just wake up and you just make sales calls all day. Um, like pharmaceutical reps and things of that nature, or um, home health care aides. Many times, the first place they go is going to be to their first, you know, their first visit for the day. And if they are given a car or they have a contractual right to that transportation, they're going to be covered basically from, you know, from the moment they leave their house to the moment they get home. Yeah. Um, but it, it, there's all of those are very spa- fact specific circumstances that are going to require kind of a in-depth factual analysis to so you can understand how that transportation has been provided to that employee. Can you hedge against that? So if you're if you're an employee and you get you, you get in an accident, and, it, and I guess it could even be your fault in the accident, but as long as you were doing uh, work-related activities, you're, you've got coverage. Yeah, I mean, it's, so the the whole system is is a, there's, it's a no-fault system. So, I mean, you can be screwing off. I mean, horseplay is is not is compensable. So you can have folks in the office running around, jumping around, playing, not really doing anything related to work, and somebody gets hurt, and it's going to be compensable. Um, and, you know, same thing with driving. If you're on the phone and you're not paying attention and you run into somebody and you get hurt, you're still going to be covered under the Workers' Compensation Act. Um, now, there are extreme examples of, of, like, you know, if you try to go – take your car and jump a ramp or something. I mean, if you did something crazy in your car, that may not be covered. Um, Likewise, if you try to jump out of the window or something like that here, that's probably not going to be covered. But in general, just because you are a bad driver or you're not paying attention, doesn't really matter for the employer's perspective. Are there any tips that you would give employers as far as what you can do to mitigate your exposure in a workers' comp situation? Yeah, I mean, number the number one thing is to get somebody the medical treatment and pay for them to go to the medical provider and get your insurance company notified as soon as possible. I mean, the worst, the worst cases that I see from an employer standpoint is they don't want to file a claim because they're worried about their premium going up. So they're going to cover medical bills for the, you know, they're just going to pay for the medical out of pocket. So what happens is they don't know, they're not savvy enough to know that the claim may be not be, may not even be compensable because there are defenses because they're just not going to know that stuff so they don't really do an investigation on the claim they just start sending body sending somebody up to the doctor they usually will rack up four or five thousand dollars in medical bills because they're not paying them under the fee schedule they're just paying the invoices that they come in they're not reduced at all so they're paying all this money out of pocket and then all of a sudden the person needs an mri or some expensive procedure but it's three months down the road then they report it to their insurance company yeah. Then the insurance company gets involved and is like, well, look, number one, you were paying too much for the medical bills. Number two, we could have denied the claim, but now we can't really do a proper investigation, et cetera. So if you fail to report as the employer, can you uh, jeopardize your coverage? 
You're not going to jeopardize your coverage, but you just jeopardize your defenses. And if you're an employer and you start, the employer and the insurance company are basically treated the same in these workers' compensation claims. So if the employer um, pays all this out-of-pocket stuff, um, and they basically can can take action that will stop the insurance company from later denying the claim because it, the courts will say, well, the employer treated it as compensable because they paid for all this stuff and they kept paying them wages. And, and I guess why that matters to you if you're the employer is is because your your premium is going to go up the, the larger the, the carrier pays out on your claim. That's right. It, it will affect your premium. But, all the, but what happens is, is the employer will pay all this out-of-pocket stuff. Then they'll eventually file the claim with the insurance company. And then I'll get involved as the lawyer. And the first thing they'll ask me is, what is the insurance company going to reimburse me for the medical bills that I paid? Or, and are they going to reimburse me for the wage continuation? And my answer is no. You should have reported it to them. They're not going to voluntarily reimburse you for that because you didn't, you know, you're supposed to report it and you're supposed to do X, Y, and Z, and you did not do that. What would your advice be to the employer that feels like an employee's made a disingenuous claim? You know, because that, that's, that's a question I get commonly from employers. They'll say, well, well, you know, Jim's laying up from work. He claims that this was some kind of back incident from work or something, but we don't believe him. This is his fifth claim. You know, I know you got to be careful because you can end up with a retaliation claim if you fire someone or terminate them because of making an, um, a worker's compensation claim. But do you have to keep the employee... Um, employed that's kind of a habitual claimant or, or you feel like they're being dishonest? Well, I mean, you do have to be careful with, with Rita and you can't fire somebody because they make a claim and you can't fire somebody because you say that, you know, because they say they're sick or something like that. But I mean, the biggest thing is, is most of the time employees, most of the time bad employees don't become great employees. Um, and so if you've got some of these issues, you need to start recording it and you need to start documenting it. And if they do file a claim, and if they do report it to the insurance company, you need to make sure that you explain to the insurance company, hey, look, there's red flags on this thing. Y'all need to really investigate it. This guy, you know, this guy's been out of work all these days for X, Y, and Z. You know, you need to provide them with the information so they don't, so they know that when they do their investigation. Well, what about the situation where just you're you're a small employer and you you need to replace that person's position because they're not available to do their job duties. Maybe they're legitimately injured. Um, can you let somebody go just on the basis of, hey, you know, I had to bring on somebody full-time to replace you and I'm not gonna be able to bring you back on once you recover? No, that I mean, that that's, I mean, now again, just in workers' compensation, again, I don't wanna jump into the ADA because I'm gonna end up giving bad advice, but no, there's, there's no requirement. I mean, North Carolina is an at-will employment state, so you can hire and fire at will, and so, um, even if someone has filed a workers' compensation claim, if you have a good reason to fire them, you can do that. For example, someone may have a valid workers' compensation claim, but they refuse to undergo a drug test despite yeah. the fact that they know that they're supposed to do that. That happens all the time. If that's a, you know, if that's what the the policy is, folks will terminate them for that. It may affect. Um, it may make it the claim more expensive once somebody's terminated. But if you've got a good reason to terminate them, you can do that even if there is. A workers' compensation claim. Gotcha. That makes sense. And I, I guess you know, and that's in that sort of situation, it's it's kind of um, 
I mean, yeah, there, there's more to it than just the workers' comp end of it. Uh-huh. But, but I, I get what you're saying as far as, you know, just you can't, you, you don't want the claim itself to ever be a, a justification for something, for a termination or, or an employment decision. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and, and you can, I mean, but you just need to treat the injured worker just like you would treat any other employee. And if you do that and if you have documentation, um, then you should be good. What's the deal? So what about make work situations? And as I understand make work, that's when you've got somebody that, that maybe, you know, maybe they have a physical job and because of an injury they sustained at work, they're throwing a lift restriction or something of that nature. And you say, well, you know what? I don't want to pay this employee just to stay at home, which I guess would be two thirds their income. I'm going to bring them in and have them answer the phone or something that's maybe not really a, a position, but you yeah. can still find something that has some kind of value to the company. Is that is that a problem to, to um, to create a new position that maybe didn't otherwise exist to accommodate somebody's in- injury? Yeah, no, so that's a good question. So in North Carolina, um, if somebody has gotten hurt and they've got work restrictions and they're not at MMI, which means maximum medical improvement. So in layman's terms, they're still treating. Basically, the, you know, they're not, they've not healed, the doctor has not performed surgery and said that they're fine or declared them to be at maximum medical improvement. Let's just say they have temporary work restrictions following an injury. Um, in North Carolina, you can create a position for them to work. It doesn't have to be what's quote unquote called a suitable position or suitable employment. So if you have a position that you can that you want them to do because you want to bring them back into the office and keep them engaged in the workforce, you certainly should offer that. There's a couple things that you've got to do to make sure that it's suitable. You're going to have to come up with a written job description. You're going to have to send that to the doctor you're going to have to basically ask the doctor, hey, these are, these are the restrictions that they have. This is the job that I've got for them to do. Can they physically do it? If the doctor says yes and signs off on it, then you can offer that position to the injured worker. But you've got to get the doctor to sign off on it. Does the pay have to be the same as their prior job? It does not. It does not. So you could, I guess in theory, you could you could take it. Because I understand when you're, I guess it's temporary total disability, if you're, you're too disabled to work, your pay is maybe, is it two thirds of what you would have gotten? Per- yeah, 66 and two thirds, yeah. So if that's the case, then you could, as the employer say, well, if I'm paying 66 and two thirds, I've got this new opportunity that you can do at 62 and a third percent of your prior income um, that, you know, as long as the doctor approves it, then, then that's, that's, a, that's a feasible option. That's right. The injured worker would be entitled to temporary partial disability benefits. So the way that that typically works is, let's say somebody's working in the field in a skilled, let's say they're a surveyor in the field and they're getting paid $30 an hour, right? Let's say that they get hurt, but survey company's got a job in the office filing. They pay $12 for you to come in there and file. So it's 40 hours a week. You're sitting there filing all day. but you're making less from the employer than you were doing your surveying job. The insurance company's gonna make up those wages. They're gonna pay you temporary partial disability benefits. So is that two thirds of the shortfall? That's right. So you'll take their pre-injury wage um, and the difference between their return to work wage, get that number, then you take 66 and two thirds of that of that figure, and that's the temporary partial disability benefit that the insurance company's gonna pay, but it's gonna be lower, I mean, it's gonna help if you're worried about your premium, the amount paid out on the claim, that's going to help. Plus, 
the reality of it is, is keeping workers engaged and keeping them in the workforce is going to be more helpful in the long term. There's all of these studies that show that, you know, the longer a worker is away from the job and the longer they are under quote unquote disability status, it's just harder and harder statistically to return them back to work. Yeah. So if you can keep them engaged, it's very helpful. Well, it's kind of like the, you know, almost like the gap in the resume thing. When you're looking for employment, kind of the longer you're out, the longer it, it takes to get back and to re-engage in the process. That's right. I mean, and they become deconditioned. And I mean, there's there's, there's lots of different things that make it. And, and they just lose, you know, eventually they just, you know, they lose whatever buy-in they had with the company and they don't really care. What would you say is the biggest issue that's litigated in workers' comp? Is it, I can't go back to work? Or is it whether or not I need this medical condition or this medical treatment? Or is it that I'm permanently disabled because of my injury? So in North Carolina, there's a lot of litigation surrounding, I guess, three three things. One is just going to be compensability in general. Because we still have a very viable, I guess, injury requirement or, excuse me, accident requirement in our claims. I mean, you have got to show that there was this interruption of the work routine. You've got to show that you weren't doing your normal job. And so there's a lot of litigation with regard to just convincibility in general. Then the next thing is going to be disability. Uh, there's lots of litigation over whether a job is suitable. Typically in the situation wherein um, they've are, they're at maximum medical improvement and they've gotten permanent work restrictions and there's a litigation over whether or not uh, their, their, pre-injury way, their pre-injury job is something that they can physically do. Um, and then medical treatment disputes. Those are those are the three things where we we see a lot because in North Carolina the employer and the carrier has the right to direct medical treatment. So if an injured worker gets hurt and they accept the claim, the insurance company has a right to tell um, the employee where they're going to go to the doctor at. And if they don't like that doctor, there's lots of issues with that. Hey, how does that work? Because uh, I, I, I'm familiar with the process where the injured employee can get a second opinion, but I guess what you're saying is that, that as far as who actually performs the treatment, that's going to be the worker or the insurer's call. That's right. So they're going to get to pick who they, we call them the authorized treating provider. So they, the typically the claims adjuster is going to, let's say it's a knee injury, um, they're going to, they've gone to a medac or, or an urgent care, urgent care says, look, you know, you're not getting any better, you need to go to an orthopedic provider. The and the employer says, my cousin went to Dr. Smith in town. He's the best knee doctor. I want to go there. The workers' compensation carrier is typically going to say, well, that's nice, but I'm not going to send you to Dr. Smith. I'm going to send you to Dr. Brown. That's who's our approved doctor, and that's who we want you to go to. I guess they're really not retained experts. They're just treating in their normal. What would they do if workers' comp take that out of the picture? This is what I think. Yeah, so they're they're not. I mean, this isn't even an expert situation. That's just, they're just going to pick who you get your treatment from. And if you don't like it, you have to file a motion. You have to sh- show the industrial commission why you you don't feel that you can treat with the workers' comp doctors. Now you do have the right to a. There are two different second opinions that we deal with. Um, and so the worker does have the right to request a comprehensive second opinion. So let's say that there's a situation wherein the employer sends you to Dr. Smith. You go to Dr. Smith and for whatever reason, you're the injured worker, you don't like Dr. Smith or you disagree with what he says or Dr. Smith is recommending recommending a complex surgery and you're not sure you want to undergo that without 
somebody else looking at you. You can request a comprehensive second opinion from the insurance company. They don't automatically have to provide you with that second opinion. They have the ability to, the statute says they may agree to that. And so you can have a conversation with them and they don't have to agree to the doctor that you want, but there is a process for you to get that second opinion if you can show a good reason why. And you're gonna be given a chance to negotiate on a provider that maybe both of you can deal with. Is there exposure for the employer or insurance carrier if for medical malpractice? If they, if, if you know, if you select or your insurance company selects your employee's carrier, and then your designated uh, medical professional commits malpractice, is that on you or is that on the, the medical professional? So if if you are, um, I'm trying to give a good example. So yeah, if 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 the workers' comp doctor pays for you to undergo medical treatment, and there are complications as a result of that treatment, the workers' compensation carrier has to pay for that resultant injury. The, the courts have said that that is going to be causally related to the workers' compensation claim. Now, just because you get workers' compensation benefits for that, it doesn't mean that you cannot file a medical malpractice claim against that third-party provider. But the, the, but the um, workers' comp carrier will pay for those complications. And I guess the final thing kind of that I want to talk about for just briefly is subrogation. And so, is you know, the, that's the situation where um, the insurer or the employer um, pays for their employee's injury, but it could be that a third party caused the injury, but it was compensable because it happened at work. Um, are there any tips that you, you would recommend for an employer as far as how to uh, position themselves for subrogation? Or does, um, if it's paid by the insurance company, do does the employer have to participate in the subrogation case brought by the insurance company? No, typically the employer is not going to be participating in that. I mean, especially if they have, unless they're a big self-insured or high retention, uh, meaning that they've got, that they're paying out a certain percentage of that loss. Let's just say you're a small mom and pop company. You've got a worker that's in a car, they're in a bad car accident, and your workers' compensation insurance pays for those bills. You don't have to participate in the subrogation. Now, you may be asked to participate in that third-party litigation in depositions and stuff like that, but there's nothing really you, you can do as an employer to um, to assist with that. Just help your insurance, just help the workers' compensation carrier, just provide them with that information. And that workers' compensation carrier is going to typically put the third party on notice that they have a lien against any settlement that the injured worker may receive. And I guess most of those times it's not really a, a huge burden because they could subpoena you anyway and it's 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 no greater obligation than, than could be imposed through other means um, besides that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I appreciate your time. I guess the big takeaway, as I understand it, is one, you need to, if, if you're a small employer and you're on the cusp of whether you should have it or not, you should take a look at the, the your, your officer situation and kind of make sure that you're not, and you're not exposing yourself to penalties for, for not having insurance, that uh, documentation's a key, you know, as far as, you know, to get an accident report if something happens or an incident report and make sure to, uh, to offer treatment. And then second, then I guess, you know, finally just uh, take, uh, take care of your folks and you know try to avoid situation don't don't make decisions based on workers comp claims because that can that can lead to something bad did i, did I miss something or no i think i right. think that's it that's all right. right well i appreciate it thanks again for coming on i appreciate your time no thanks so much